Luke 22, verses 1 through 16. Before we read God's holy word, let us pray that he would open up truth, eternal truth to us. Heavenly Father, gracious God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake, amen. God's word, Luke 22, verses 1 through 16. Let's give our attention to its reading. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. The grass withers. The flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. In the category of novels that every Christian should and must read, must is probably a little bit strong, but and in the category of novels that every Christian should read is the book The Hammer of God by Bo Geertz. I've I think made mention of this before, this, uh, this story, this novel. I've certainly invoked little vignettes from it before naming it, but simply it is a fantastic book. I was worried that I was a little bit off with my literary taste. I'm not necessarily trained in, in literature, so I, I sent this book off to one of my good friends getting his PhD now, has extensive training in literature. He gobbled it up in the course of a couple days, said it was simply fantastic. So I know I'm not, I'm not leading you astray as I suggest this book to you. I reread a chapter of this book this past week, and I was doing so as I was making preparation uh, for this sermon and thinking about this passage. I was rereading parts of it. Thankfully, I was rereading it as I was watching the girls in the bathtub so that I could say all of the water on my face was from their splashing in the bath and not from my uh, crying just by myself sitting in the corner of the bathroom there. But uh, wonderful stories, wonderful little vignettes that show how uh, the the call of ministers in the church and the call of of Christians is to go between these roads of of, uh, legalism and, and liberalism and to stay clinging always to the person of Jesus Christ. 
the person of Jesus Christ, in whom we are reconciled to God, the exaltation of his work and his name. One particular story that I reread this week was uh, this one minister who had labored and worked for a long time to, to uh, call one of his parishioners who was very resistant to the gospel and, and thought that he could live licentiously and however he wanted and didn't understand grace and didn't understand the, the call of Jesus Christ. And this minister worked and worked and prayed and prayed. Ultimately, this man went off to war, went off to battle, was eventually killed. And this minister was, of course, very saddened, thinking that this, this man had, had died under the wrath of God. He receives a, a letter several weeks later that took a long time to get through all of the, uh, the, the military protocol and all of that. Of course, it was from this man who uh, wrote him from the front of the battle lines and basically says, I... I understand now my utter lack of righteousness. I I understand now my need for a representative, for a substitute. And so this minister, overcome with joy and gladness, runs to go tell his wife to share this joy that they may rejoice together. This is a joy, the author says, that is shared with the angelic host in heaven which bursts out in jubilation every time it sees a little brother on earth lift his face toward heaven and be drawn to God, conquered by the suffering-filled glory of the cross and cleansed by that sacrifice of atonement of the one who died in the place of sinners. We are called to see that transcendent and that life-changing, that universe-changing truth that Jesus Christ lived and died in the place of Sinners, in my place, in your place, condemned, he stood. We come to a shift in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22, uh, shifting from Jesus' journey and entry into Jerusalem. Now we we enter the the passion narrative, the, the story of the cross. How did we get to the point where Jesus Christ is crucified? And And how are we to understand that and what that means for us and for our lives? The way that Luke begins this passion narrative here at this point tells us a lot about how we are to think about it. It's connected to an indispensable part of the Old Testament story and an indispensable part of the the Jewish culture from which Jesus emerges, the Passover one of the clearest pictures in all of scripture of redemption and atonement, redemption by blood and the covering of sin. The Passover, and indeed here we see the Passover's fulfillment, the Passover's true meaning is found in the blood of the Son of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We'll walk through this passage together and highlight a few things. The first is the covenant of death that Judas makes with the religious leaders. The covenant of death, then the divine appointment of the Passover's preparation, divine appointment, and then lastly, Jesus' earnest desire. Covenant of death, divine appointment, and an earnest desire. We've seen in chapter 21 uh, things that, that Jesus has been bringing to the fore. There's this the, this condemnation of the, the misunderstanding of the temple that had been perpetuated by much of the religious, religious leadership in Israel. Remember, Jesus isn't anti-temple. He's anti-temple misunderstanding. 
And in many ways, since he has showed up in Jerusalem, he has been clearing out, or figuratively speaking, clearing out the temple so that his work might be brought to the fore. And he says in chapter 21 that the temple eventually is going to be destroyed. And indeed it was in the year 70 AD. And this means many things, but for our purposes here as we move forward in the Gospel of Luke, it's Jesus bringing forward his work. In, in, in whose body there will be the final and perfect and sufficient sacrifice that will cleanse consciences and that will give us the assurance that all of our sins are washed away. Indeed, we see that it is connected uh, in the way that Luke presents it to this celebration, this feast of the Passover. A couple things that we can note from this connection. The first is we need to understand a little bit how important and how central this feast, this celebration was for the Israelites. It was really the the pinnacle of God's display of power in the Old Testament, his bringing them out of Egypt and that last wonder that he wrought in the land of Egypt as the destroyer, the angel of death, moves through the land of Egypt and takes the firstborn where the blood is not found on the doorpost. This was their their New Year's feast. Their, their, Their calendar, in a sense, revolved around this. It was really kind of foundational to their identity and to their religious life. And of course, as we mentioned, another thing that we can note is that Passover was all about redemption and atonement the blood of a a spotless lamb that was to be sprinkled on doorposts, a a clear picture of being covered by atoning blood, a clear picture of wrath being turned away. Last week we talked about that word propitiation, something that turns away wrath. And that is what Passover shows us, God's wrath being turned away through atoning blood. This shows us what kind of framework Uh, Luke is using as he unfolds the passion narrative. These are the ways, the the, the categories that we are to to use to understand the work of Jesus on the cross. We also need to understand the way that Luke has been unfolding this in a a beautiful narrative sense. Remember that in chapter 9, Jesus, uh, he turns his face to Jerusalem. He's not going to, his, his mission is not going to be thwarted. He's not going to turn to the right or the left. He knows what he, is, what he has been sent to do, and he will fulfill the mission that his father has given to him. We also remember all the way back around that time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is transfigured and he is lifted up between Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are talking about Jesus' exodus. Remember, that's a word that's not going to show up in your English translations, but the word there is Moses and Elijah are speaking about the exodus of Jesus. In other words, all of his work, the mission that he is finishing in in, in the Gospel of Luke is his own exodus. He is effecting his own exodus. What does the word exodus mean? It is a departure. It's a a getting out. Understood biblically, it's it's a liberation. A gaining of freedom over tyrannical powers. Getting out of bondage. And this is what the gospel writers are constantly trying to bring to our mind, to bring to our attention. Jesus is the son of David, but he is a transcendent and unique king. He is is a wonderfully unique savior because he saves us from our sin. He saves us from our sin. And this is why it it is imperative that to be a biblical Christian, 
to understand our faith in light of God's word and, and not in light of the, 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 the streams of thought that are so often present in our world of the moralistic therapeutic deism. God is sort of this genie in a bottle that kind of invades my life when I need something from him. He sort of wants me to be nice and responsible and moral, shows up when I need something and then kind of uh, goes away again. And that's not what God is at all. In order to be a biblical Christian, we need to fight to remain close to God's word that we need to understand ourselves as sinners who need to be redeemed. We need redemption from sin. The parables of, uh, that Jesus uh, told when he was on earth bring this understanding to the fore. I think of the parable of, of the talents where Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a, a king who's settling accounts with his servants, and uh, there is one of his servants who owes him 10,000 talents, a, a debt that he could never repay. So he begs the king to forgive him, be merciful to me, and the king does. And the servant goes out, and what does he do? He, he, he finds someone who owes him a much smaller debt. It is a significant debt, but it is much smaller, and he is unwilling to forgive. It shows us that if we understand the kind of debt from which God has redeemed us, our whole life, our whole existence will be shaped by gratitude and thankfulness and desire to serve, that we will stand in awe of this God who has redeemed us. We read from Psalm 51 for our prayer of confession this morning. Uh, Psalm 51 says that, that our sins, our offenses are primarily against God. James chapter 4 says that God is the lawgiver and he is the judge. He is, he is above his creation and it is his right to give the law and to be the judge. Romans 11 says that God shuts up men under disobedience. Even John 3 says that all men are subject to the wrath of God. We have been, because of our sinfulness, put in a prison under God's wrath and judgment. But the exodus of Jesus... Is Jesus coming to effect freedom from the bondage to sin and death? That is the exodus that Jesus has come to give his people. But this exodus theme shows up at various places in the Gospel of Luke. It helps us understand the conflict between Jesus and the leaders in a really interesting way here in our passage before us. Uh, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests, uh, there's an allusion here in, in verse 2 to Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, where Pharaoh is seeking to kill Moses. We see here in chapter 2 of our passage that uh, the leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they are seeking to kill Jesus. It's not just get rid of Jesus. It, it probably better just translated, they were seeking to kill Jesus. They had arrived at the understanding that that was the only way that they could, uh, that they could get rid of him. They're scared to take risks in this way because they know the following that Jesus has, but they are seeking to kill Jesus. And that, in that way, they align themselves with, the, with Pharaoh in the story of the Exodus, that he was seeking to kill the leader of God's people. Jesus has been condemning the, the misunderstandings of the, the religious leadership of Israel that they were keeping the people in bondage, just like Pharaoh was keeping the Israelites in bondage in the story of the Exodus. And so we see Luke connecting these dots for us. But, of course, uh, the, the leadership of Israel has failed to catch Jesus in something that he might say. They have failed to uh, sort of disprove all of his claims. 
So we see in verse 3 that the stakes are, are heightened a bit. This becomes a, a cosmic clash of good and evil because Satan re-enters the scene. He re-enters the scene all the way back from chapter 4. Chapter 4, it says, after he tempts Jesus and all of those temptations fail, it says that he left him until he was to return at an opportune time. And that opportune time has now come. We read that Satan enters Judas. He enters Judas. What are some things that we can learn about Satan entering Judas here? A couple of things. The first is that as biblical Christians, we need to stand on the truth that Satan is real and he is personal. He is not a vague, nebulous force. He is real and he is personal. He is at work in the world. He seeks to destroy and to thwart God's kingdom and his purposes. We need to be unashamed supernaturalists in this sense. We need to affirm the spiritual realm, the way that that scripture speaks about it, even though we're not going to understand the depths of it. We affirm uh, the spiritual realm and that Satan and his armies are at work to destroy as much as they can, particularly now that they know that their destruction is imminent. But what does this mean for Judas? And and we wonder certainly what it means for us. Satan enters Judas. What is the nature of this indwelling? Well, we don't really, we're not explained. Uh, It doesn't explain here uh, what the nature of this indwelling is. Does it mean that Satan sort of personally indwelt Judas Iscariot? Or was it simply more of a closer influencing of his actions? There's mystery that's left to it. But we can know that as it relates to the way that we think about our spiritual life, that, that Judas, because of a deeply embedded, embedded pattern of sin, remember he would help himself to the money that was in the, the money bag intended for Jesus and uh, the, the disciples to sort of provide for all the things that they need. He, uh, he would help himself to that. He was stealing. He was embezzling fun. There was, there was deeply embedded patterns of sin in the life of Judas. He left himself open to the action of Satan and for Satan to enter him. So it's not as if uh, as, a, as a child of God, as a, a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to worry about Satan being able to, to enter you in the way that he does to Judas here. In Matthew and Mark, it's interesting that uh, in those gospels, Judas is driven to this action immediately after. Remember when Jesus is anointed by that woman with, uh, with expensive oil. And uh, Judas says, this, or, this should have been sold. We should have sold this and gotten money. Or it says some of the apostles uh, said that, but certainly Judas would have been among them. And right after that, Judas is driven to this action. In other words, in his mind, he's thinking, in order to compensate for that foolish action by Jesus, I'm going to go make some money on my own. This deeply embedded pattern of sin. So we, we know, certainly, and thinking about it biblically, Judas was never saved, he was never justified, he was never made a child of God, and thus we need to remember that. Remember that Satan does not enter into God's children. But this does serve as a warning to us. It does serve as a warning to us to make our calling and our election sure. To, to walk with the Lord is not to think in a cavalier way, oh, everything's fine, everything's good, I don't need to, to worry about my life with God. No, we need to be diligent to make sure of our calling and our election, to seek God, to be aware of our own sinfulness in our day-to-day life. John Calvin says this, 
For though Satan drives us every day to crimes, yet he is said to enter into the reprobate. When he takes possession of all their senses, overthrows the fear of God, extinguishes the light of reason, and destroys every feeling of shame. This extremity of vengeance God does not execute on any but those who are already devoted to destruction. Let us therefore learn to repent early, lest our long-continued harshness should confirm the reign of Satan within us. For as soon as we have been abandoned to this tyranny, his rage will have no bounds." See, Calvin says it's not as if you look at it and you say, well, that's definitely not me, so I have nothing to worry about. No, Calvin says it should drive you to repentance, as we talked about today, running that race of repentance. It should drive you to seek the Lord and to be diligent, to hold fast your confession. We see how utterly foolish this action by Judas is, uh, Luke presents it to us as a bit of a, of a covenant. This is a, a deeply embedded agreement. It's sort of a, a, a false, a, a horrible copy of what was going on in eternity between the Father and the Son. That Judas has this, this covenant of death that he makes with the leaders of Israel, of course, under the influence of Satan. Secondly, there's this divine appointment, verses 7 through 13. Uh, what we see here as this, this room is made available to Jesus and his disciples is that only the sovereign will of God could have arranged such a room. We remember that Jerusalem would be packed during the time of the Passover. Thousands were, would come into the city in order to, to celebrate and to observe this feast. This would have been thus extremely unlikely for them to be able to find a, a room for them to be able to use at this time. So it would be like going into a, this, the city that's hosting the Super Bowl and the night before trying to find a hotel room, right? All the hotel rooms are going to be booked. Rooms would have been in extremely short supply, but Jesus gives his disciples directions that would have exceeded the wildest expectations anyone would have had. It's kind of like your your car breaking down, and it's, you, know, you know that it's, it's broken down beyond repair. Right? You, you finally you put the 400,000 miles on the old Honda, and it's finally gone. And an hour later, somebody hands you keys to a brand new you know, Mercedes or Lexus or something. This is the kind of, of thing that Jesus works together here. Jesus says, go, find this certain man. He'll have a large room that can handle all of us. Not only that, it will be all furnished. He's showing his power. He's showing his sovereignty. I've been reading a lot about George Washington lately. I found an American historian writer that I really like to read and uh, talks a lot about Washington and what made him a man that was uh, above reproach and so fascinating to so many was that he refused to become king when many would have gladly made him such. Right? He he was pushing power away, sort of taken with the, the vision of the, the, the Cincinnatus-type figure, uh, the one who stepped down and left power on the table. After he did not seek his third term as president, legend has it that a befuddled King George said that this made Washington the greatest character of the age, or some have said the greatest man alive, that he would leave that kind of power on the table. How does someone with so much power... Lay it down. How does someone with so much power humble himself? We're meant to see something similar here and much greater. How does someone who created the very ground upon which he is walking, who 
can tell his disciples in the midst of uh, the hustle and bustle of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, go, this man is going to tell you exactly what, uh, he's going to show you exactly what we need. It's all going to be there for us. It's going to be free. Don't worry about it. It's all going to be taken care of. How is it that he so willingly lays down his life? The leadership of Israel could not disprove him. They could not uh, embarrass him. Everything he does, he does willingly. He does according to God's appointment. Even the the greatest force of evil in the universe, Satan here, is, is working within the sovereign will of God. One theologian puts it this way. God does not just provide salvation. He does the saving work himself. At a specific point in human history, the almighty second person of the Trinity, the Lord of glory, stooped down and took on a human nature. For our sake, he was condemned to death and suffered the wrath of God. God has entered into the mess he allowed and taken the brunt of the pain. What this says is that one who knew perfect goodness himself was willing to undergo trouble for the sake of the world he created. He decided that it was worth creating and redeeming such a world in spite of what it would cost him in suffering. What Jesus does, he does willingly. We are meant to to see this and to, to take it in. The Lord of glory who is becoming uh, even before our eyes as we read the, the Gospel of Luke who's going willingly to the cross as the Lamb of God. It's an old Lutheran hymn that puts it this way. What, what punishment so strange is suffered yonder? The shepherd dies for sheep that loved to wander. The master pays the debt his servants owe him who would not know him. The sinless son of God must die in sadness. The sinful child of man may live in gladness. Man forfeited his life and is acquitted. God is committed. He dies in the place of sinners. He lays down his life willingly. He never ceases to be the eternal son of God. He's the eternal son of God who becomes man. So we close this morning with His earnest desire that he says in verses 14 through 16. Verse 15 is is really the the main thing we are to see here. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have desired to eat this Passover. We see there's a connection being drawn between the Passover and the suffering of Jesus. Jesus. He eagerly desires to eat this Passover because it is the last one that will be eaten before, as he says, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Probably a a double meaning there. Before it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God that we are merely hours away from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That all that the Passover pointed to in a sense you could say in the eternal sovereignty of God the wonder that is that what the Passover was uh, was a a copy an imitation of the pa- the Passover was patterned after Christ even though it, it happens first that after which the, the Passover was patterned is about to take place we are about to see the one who is called in first Corinthians 5 the Passover lamb the one whose blood saves us from the wrath of God, just as, just as what we see in the Passover blood covering sin and turning away 
the wrath of God. Jesus is eagerly desiring to show his disciples the meaning of what he is about to do. That he becomes the Passover lamb. Another, that, that double meaning of it being fulfilled is, of course, it's pointing forward to when the kingdom of God comes into its fullness. When all those who have been atoned for by the blood of this Passover lamb are joined together from every corner of the globe, given their, their resurrection bodies, and we all stand in the crucified and risen Lamb of God and in his work and in the body that he will give to us, and we enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb together. Together. The eternal hope that Jesus gives to us is one in which we must rejoice. We see, even in this passage, the, the tyranny of, of Satan and sin and death. We see uh, Satan's tyranny exercised over Judas Iscariot. And even in the midst of that, we are bring, being brought to this, these eternal truths that Jesus Christ is the one who, because of his precious blood, by his precious blood, not only do we have forgiveness of sins, but he sets us free from the tyranny of the devil. He sets us free from the tyranny of the devil. This is the exodus that he is bringing into effect. And he gives us this, this eternal hope. It's not like walking into a cafeteria and, and choosing your redeemer. You know, I'll have, I'll have this redeemer. Those who need redemption from sin like we do, we, we don't get to choose our own redeemer. It is about, as we read at the beginning, being overcome by the glory filled suffering of the cross the the lord of glory laying down his life and giving us this eternal hope this eternal hope all of those who have died in the lord all of those who have gone before us that have died in faith who are in the presence of jesus christ now one day we will all be together those who remain on this earth who perhaps are inching closer and closer uh, to death that we can know and be assured that at the day, the great day, when the kingdom of God comes into its fullest expression, we be given uh, redemption, resurrected bodies to eat and drink with the Lamb of God who died for sin, who took away the sin of the world. as the one who died in the place of sinners. The blood of Christ is how we are saved. This is Jesus, the Passover Lamb. We believe in him, and we proclaim him as the way and the truth and the life. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, our gracious God, we are humbled in the shadow of the cross. We are amazed at uh, the, the fact that the, the eternal Son of God would, would come, take to himself a human nature, and and die for sinners. We are, are eternally grateful. We ask that you would impress these things upon our minds and hearts today. That we would live in light of them. And that you would assure us of your love and grace through it by the power of your spirit. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.